Welcome to Elixir Wizards, a podcast brought to you by SmartLogic, a custom web and mobile development shop based in Baltimore. My name is Sunday Mint, and I'll be your host. I'm joined by my co-host, Owen Bickford. Hey, Owen. Hey, Sunday. And this season's theme is Elixir in a polyglot environment, where we talk about how Elixir works with other languages. Today, we are joined by a special guest, Kara Mitchell from PepsiCo. Hey, Kara, how are you doing? Hi, everyone. Doing good. Did I hear you say at the top of the show that you are calling in from New York, or did I just totally make that up? Yeah. No, I'm in New York today. The Lower East Side is where I'm recording this from. It's been really nice here lately, so... Awesome. I love New York. I love visiting New York. I used to go once a month. Now it's amazing if I can go once a year. <laughs> Owen, have you been? I've been a couple times, very different scenarios, but I have. I don't think I can say I've fully enjoyed or had the New York experience. What is the New York experience? I've done the tourist experience mm-hmm. a couple times, once with a big group and then once with friends and family. Cara, how would you describe the New York experience as a New Yorker? I have no idea. I've lived here <laughs> for quite a while, about 17, almost 18 years now. So it's just home. What people come here for can sometimes baffle me. Times Square is not one of those things that I think of. I've never thought that, but some people really like seeing some of those unique landmarks. But part of why I live here, I don't need to drive. I can take mass transit or ride my bike everywhere. And there's a lot of variety. You have all sorts of neighborhoods. You don't need to travel outside of the country to get cuisine from all over the world or people speaking different languages. It's just everywhere. It's it's part of everyday life, which is really cool. Yeah, absolutely. And And my reason for going is more or less a sandwich, which sounds a little obsessive, but it is life-changing and it saved my life one time and it's an amazing sandwich. I mean, no, I'm, I'm really going for my friends, but I will not leave the city without that sandwich. They know me as that girl who gets a sandwich before she gets on the train. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think my mistake was thinking of it as an experience. I think next time I go to New York, I need to go and like meet someone I know so that I can you know, like venture out a little bit more and not just do the touristy stuff. Yeah. Or maybe meet up with Kara or right. all yeah, the other I know yeah. friends one person we know in Brooklyn. In at least now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We've got little pockets of tech here and, and that's a lot of fun, but we have a lot of other communities, you know, if you're into certain kinds of music, it really depends. There's, there's a, a little bit of everything. So whether you're into art, music, riding your bike, even sightseeing, bird watching, <laughs> everything, you can find groups that do just about everything. It's, it's one thing I like about living in New York City is you do feel connected to a lot more than just tech. I don't want to bash the Bay Area too much, but one reason why I don't like visiting the Bay Area is because when you're there, you feel like everything around you is tech. You go to a cafe and everyone's talking shop. Here, it's very different. You can go somewhere and not hear anyone mention anything about programming or anything about technology or startups or whatever. And it's really refreshing to be able to access uh, that that side of the city. That is like the best thing. I think one thing people asked me about when I lived in DC was like, oh, people must be talking about the Hill all the time and like the senators and stuff. And I was like, I've literally never run into that. No one is talking about it, or at least maybe my community's tech, at least in the D.C. area, but it just never came up. I went to karaoke performances by our coworker and co-host Alex, and I went to like tech meetups, and 
uh, brunch. Everyone was at brunch, but nobody's really talking shop and politics. And I just, I loved that. It was just sort of all, all the sorts of other stuff. So I don't know if um, there's a particular thing people talk about in Michigan, Owen, but uh, is it hockey? Tell me it's hockey. Pro- I mean, I'm not in those conversations, but you're probably right. When I was in Texas, it was football and baseball, mostly football. So yeah, I, I'm sure if I was in those circles, I would hear a lot more about hockey. <laughs> but Kara, you mentioned like music and that gave me a flashback. I've been to New York three times and one time I always forget about, I was in a band and we did a kind of a tour and we went up to New York and like stayed at like a makeshift loft, which has probably been renovated into like a multi-million dollar apartment complex now but it's definitely a good bet <laughs> yeah <laughs> so uh, yeah that was 20 years ago wow wow you guys yeah, keep it's... talking about these decades of time <laughs> <laughs> no it, it it does make me feel a little old but at the same time the city has changed a lot and so things are constantly evolving some for the better and some not so much but you still have this vibe of people who are trying to make New York City into their space and these communities who really want to, you know, live in it, not just circumstantially be there. And so that's that's definitely something that's still a vibe. You just sometimes have to go to different neighborhoods than you did in the past, um, whether it's, you know, cost pushing people out or just communities shifting to new spaces and stuff like that. Yeah. And. I, I miss New York a lot. I really want to visit. I always think about how much I want to visit around now. And that means that I end up going in like August, which is the worst time to go. I mean, talk about <laughs> sweaty, trash, humidity, grossness. Um, yeah, there's really a joke I go. tell people about New York City. You know, after rain in the Pacific Northwest, you smell evergreen. You smell just that rain smell. I don't know. Rain smell in New York City is different. It brings out the sewer. It brings out the trash. It brings out everything you don't want to smell. And it is definitely one of the worst parts of summertime in, in New York City. It's just, it does not smell good. It, it's never, never something you want to share with anyone. You just sort of avoid it. You leave those areas when you can, but uh, you also get used to it and you just stop thinking about it. But yeah. It's a distinctive experience. If, if you want one of those New York experiences, it might be the, uh, the after rain smell. I think, I think Elixir meetup, September, October, let's go. A lot of people I want to see. And I think that would be a good time. I think actually Pepsi hosted a few meetups back in the day in the New York office. Is that still there? Uh, yeah, we still have an office. The funny thing is I got this job at PepsiCo while the pandemic was kind of in full swing. So I've actually never been in the office, <laughs> work from home. And, you know, eventually maybe I'll go into the office, but at the moment my team is spread out all over the world. And so we don't really have so many people in, in one city or another. So there's, there's less value in going into a specific office. But yeah, we, we definitely have a, a nice office and uh, hopefully we'll start hosting more events. And yeah, the local Elixir group certainly is something that we can, as opportunity arises, start doing more in-person stuff too. All right, I'll be there. Owen, you're gonna be there? I'll be there. (laughs) Okay. That is like the one meetup where the pizza will be welcome, like New York pizza (laughs) at a meetup. Yes, absolutely. You mentioned, of course, we've, we've heard about the sewer, but we've heard about the culture, the different kind of areas within New York. What I'm curious, what was it about New York that kind of drew you to it? Was it just the walkability or 
Oh, yeah, I guess this is a little, little bit of personal history, but I grew up as an Air Force brat, quote unquote, which is just keyword of saying my dad was in the Air Force and we moved around. And so as a military kid, we lived all over, including outside of the U.S. And so as we settled down in the U.S. and I graduated from school, I felt like I needed to go somewhere and travel. Like I had this itch constantly, like, why am I still in the same place? And so I, I chose New York City partly because it was interesting. It reminded me a lot of places I had been, but also because it gave me stuff that I could access without having to constantly travel. And so that was really appealing to me. So yeah, I, I moved to New York City with no job and just a uh, little over $700 in my account and <laughs> made it work. It was a little bit of a, you know, snap, let's just try and do this and made it work out. You always hear these stories, but we very rarely talk to people with these stories. That is yeah, yeah, wild. It was, it was it was a big risk, but it was possible because I was pretty well connected with various communities and uh, one of the technologies I had a lot of experience in at that point in time was Ruby. I had, I picked up Ruby doing some of my own projects before Rails was a thing, really. So I, I had a very, very deep knowledge of that language and ecosystem. And so it gave me an easy entry to a lot of businesses. And so it made it pretty easy to you know move around and, and just find work. And so I kicked something off pretty quick with that. And yeah, sustained a new career on the East Coast. Did you study computer science and programming or were you a different field? I have studied, but I'm actually a college dropout. So that's maybe something people don't expect. But yeah, I, I uh, do a lot of self-study. So I feel very, very well versed in theoretical computer science, but I taught myself most of that. So yeah, I did, did not go to college for, for programming. Never would have guessed. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I always say that our field is is more tolerant to people from all different kinds of backgrounds, and I've always appreciated that. I really, mm, sorry, the cat has just started doing some things here. <laughs> Marble has um, made an appearance. She has indeed made an it's appearance. And she's time. going she to knows. exit very quickly. There she goes. All right. <laughs> All right. We're like, how many minutes in he got his dad joke in? There we go. Hey, it's a pun. I, I don't uh -huh. accept that puns are all dad jokes. Okay, fine. I reject that, Cindy. Fine. <laughs> all right. With that interlude. Yeah, I feel like we're very tolerant of people from different backgrounds and, and whatnot. And I, I was an art major and I always, you know, I worried about it a little bit, but I was doing like computer science internships and, and whatnot during college. So I always kind of thought like, after you've gotten your foot in the door, it's okay. In fact, I remember my first manager was like, do you need to finish school? You could come work full time, right? And I was like, haha, very funny. You're not going to convince me to do that. <laughs> but, I, you know, he really wanted me to come work full time. So I thought that was cute. I was just like, you got to wait till May. Sorry, dude. <laughs> <laughs> um, cool. So anything interesting or fun going on at PepsiCo right now? I know it's one of the bigger names in the Elixir kind of space so yeah we have a lot of teams and honestly i can't give everyone sort of a fair representation of, of what they're doing especially with elixir that's pretty large organization now specific part of pepsico is the e-commerce unit and so this this part of the corporate 
PepsiCo entity manages everything from advertising, different kinds of data science, all sorts of supply chain work. My specific team is a internal in-house e-commerce system. And so this is kind of like our way of of hosting our own shopping experiences and stuff like that, rather than going outside to Shopify or whatever. And this allows us to, to tailor the experience a little more towards what some of our customers need. And yeah, some of these customers are, are really interesting. They're not just regular consumers online, but they can be businesses and by businesses. I mean, everything from professional sports teams, universities, mom and pop shops, every kind of business. And so, it's been really fun seeing that side of, of the company and, and learning about it. I've been you know, really lucky to be on this specific team because we can build our own thing. And then our, our touch points are really just about integrating with you know, the supply chain and a few other little bits here and there. But we otherwise have full control of our little e-commerce platform. And it's been a lot of fun to be able to evolve that and grow it and just really invest in, in what we can build and it's cool yeah you know, right now we're we're really trying to grow the team because we ha we have a lot of things we're very excited to build and it's really just a matter of getting enough people to to help us get there I'm curious before before elixir was it all spreadsheets or was it a different uh different <laughs> well applications? my team and our internal e-commerce capabilities didn't really exist before this we did have a arm of the IT organization that just does general information technology stuff that did some e-commerce stuff, but it, you know, was much more limited and, you know, they had a much harder time evolving and moving their capabilities forward. So the things we've been able to deliver within fractions of the year has uh, really astounded some of our internal brands, you know, what we'll have different subsidiaries, whether it's, you know, SodaStream, Gatorade or whatever, you know, there's so many brands, I can't even start to enumerate them, but they'll come to us and say, we want to do something like this. And the fact that we can like turn around an actual usable site that works and meets all sorts of wish list items is, is uh, really rewarding. We can actually empower these businesses in ways that you know, honestly, I, I don't think they thought they could get done, or at least with the budget that we're able to execute on. So it's really cool. You know, Cara, I just did a quick search on our podcast page just to see if we've talked to anyone from PepsiCo before. Oh, and do you know if you've listened to any episodes? Because I know I, I started hosting halfway through our, our history. <laughs> Have I listened to I think I've listened to <laughs> we are on season all eight. <laughs> of the episodes, but yeah, it's been a while. Uh, okay. I'm really excited we're getting a chance to talk to you, Cara. I mean, you're talking about all these brands and like, I knew that because I've seen that like flower image where it's like the PepsiCo symbols in the middle and like all the brands spread out from the middle. It's like Dasani and then the Fanta and then like all, everything's like coming out. And then it's not just obviously the drinks. It's like all the other stuff too. And it's like, oh, that's under Pepsi. Like, oh, interesting. And I've always wanted to talk to somebody just like to figure out like how you handle working in Elixir on like a global scale. Is your team working on something very specific or is like there a really cool Elixir problem that you've solved recently? We always love hearing those. So yeah, at PepsiCo, we're doing a lot of interesting things and some of it is hard to pin down as far as like putting numbers on scale. What is and isn't large for some people can be um, surprising, right? 
how many dollars are being spent versus how many requests per second you're serving or how many millions or billions of data points you're storing in some database. So what scale means can vary. And I this is not the first time I've worked on an e-commerce system. I was the first member of the platform team at Jet.com. We built an e-commerce system from scratch in F-sharp, which is not exactly the same kind of language as, as Elixir, but somewhat related in the sense that the um, functional programming approach to thinking about software and systems, you know, and, and all of that gives you different tools. And so really what's interesting is much less about the absolute scale and more about how we describe our systems and think about what's going on and really use the language. You know, it's, it's much less about oh, we've hooked up Absinthe for GraphQL and much more, okay, we've got this flow for checkout. How do we really work with all of these different stages of, of getting someone's shopping cart payment information and, and shipping information and turn that into a whole like, okay, we need to manage inventory. We need to make sure that we get communication out to confirm orders. We need to make sure we process that. We've got tax calculation. And then we've got actual fulfillment processes, whether or not orders need to be split into multiple boxes and, and so on. And so there are just so many little steps here and the ability to think about this in a more functional approach is really refreshing. And there are certainly things we can still do better, but I think this is where a lot of really cool stuff happens. And this is where Elixir becomes a really interesting tool, not just some language that works well. And so, yeah, I, I think there's definitely something special there uh, that we wouldn't have if we were, if we were writing in some other language. So is Elixir kind of reaching out to other like services or microservices like as a yeah, kind of consumer we, we application? Yeah, we use multiple or? releases to slice up some of our systems. I mean, those currently run in pods on Kubernetes. And so that kind of helps us not think about that. It's not that Kubernetes is really allowing us to do something that we couldn't do without it. It's more that it allows us to separate the job of the infrastructure management and, and the job of really making sure that all of that is available and working from the job of figuring out what is going to go into an artifact, how it connects to the rest of the system and all of the protocols in between. And so it gives easier boundaries for a lot of our teams. So we have various, various ways we slice up an umbrella project which has a lot of apps in it. And then some of those apps will be running in some releases and some won't, depending on what, what that thing is actually doing. So some things might be like a GraphQL API endpoint, and that will have some slice of code that might include you know, various ways that we access data, certain kinds of business logic to support mutations. And then on the other side, you know, we may have things that have no interactive component where there's no actual human interacting with, with that system. And those things may literally be reading off message queues and not doing any, any other processing other than message in, some messages out, rinse and repeat. And so those sorts of releases might need a very different slice of all of that code. So yeah, we, we definitely like using sort of that OTP approach to organizing our system 
And it, it certainly helps us keep a coherent code base where we have a repository that we can slice and dice many different ways without having to worry about which version of which thing needs to run and call some other thing in order to be operational. And so that, that umbrella approach has really given us a good amount of mileage for that reason. Sandy, I think I've, over the years on the podcast, I've heard mixed uh, feedback or impressions about umbrella projects. Is that your impression as well? Like sometimes it works really well and sometimes people kind of struggle to kind of grow with an umbrella project. Yeah, Car, how are you feeling about it? I think it's definitely something that isn't well expressed or taught. What an application is inside of an umbrella can be very confusing for people. Technically, in OTP terminology, an application includes every single library is an application, right? Now, the terminology and the documentation will call it an application library, which is feels redundant and confusing. But the idea is it has a lot to do with the life cycle of uh, running Erlang or Elixir system. And understanding all of that interplay becomes a really useful thing if you're looking at reliability or really consistent startup and avoiding race conditions. We talk about concurrency in the language and in the VM. And we, we think of it mostly after things are up and running. We have processes we can start to handle new connections to an API endpoint, or we have things that can just run in the background asynchronously with message boxes as buffers or things that scan and process ETS tables. All of these different forms of concurrency are interesting, but another way OTP helps out with concurrency is really getting to a, like a, a stable, like a known state that's good. So when your application starts, the goal isn't to just race to have everything up and running. It's actually racing to make sure that you guarantee everything you expect is good. And that way, as soon as one of those things fail, you know how to recover. You know, we talk about supervision hierarchies as, as something that's interesting, but very few people really make use of it in a proper way because they're not thinking in terms of what that steady state is and what good is versus what a broken system is and what, what might be malfunctioning. And so if you have one component that depends on a database connection and then that connection pool crashes, that part of the system can no longer run properly. Like the expectations that it has that you can get a connection out of that pool fail. And so the right way to think about this is to back up a bit and say, oh, we need that available. And until we have that, we can't run. So shut us down go try and reboot the connection pool, then start the application up again. And of course that will roll over to deeper and deeper dependencies. And that's some purpose. That way you're not sort of in a halfway working mode. It's like, okay, the system's either working or not. And then it's very, very consistent with how it tries to get to that working state again, whether it's right at boot or after a failure. And the way it does it is super, super consistent. Um, and so, so I find releases really help you think about that. And it's one of those things that I think people probably ought to spend a lot more time um, evaluating if, if they do care about that kind of resiliency. So yeah, I was, I was interested as you're describing that kind of restart process and kind of machines talking to each other, trying to restart. Is that 
who's in control there? Is that Kubernetes or is that OTP nodes talking to each other? Well, Kubernetes is a very coarse-grained restart, right? The pod is either running or not, right? And, you know, for better or worse, it's just sort of what Kubernetes makes easy or hard. Kubernetes very much prefers stateless pods, right? Where you can just replace one pod with another. They're effectively equal once they're up and running. And sure, you can attach volumes and you can do a bunch of other stuff to move away from statefulness, but the idea that they're sort of interchangeable parts gives clusters flexibility. You can expand and grow things. You have scaling. You can you can handle errors at a hardware level. But outside of that, it doesn't really think about anything in terms of your, your business domain and, and what a what a halfway broken system looks like. You know, as your connection pools are failing, it's not that the pods need to restart. It's that you shouldn't be initiating things that are going to get halfway through and then fall over and then need to restart, which is even more expensive. In these cases that are commonly caused by things like overload, when you look at that, you have to ask yourself, is it better to actually be down or actually just refuse doing work that you know you can't complete than just continually trying half of it and failing, right? And there are a lot of cases where this also rolls into things that are side effectful. You know, if you're sending emails, for example, you don't want to get halfway through and then have something fail after you've sent the email and then retry. You don't want to end up sending 10 copies or, or more of some communication. So in these cases, it's, it's really important to think about how you want to do those things. And I find releases, supervision hierarchies, all of that, just it's, it's almost just structure for the mind to think about those things. It's, it's not something that needs to be a rigid rule, but if you start thinking about your application in terms of those things, you start really getting answers that help you get somewhere and get you beyond just sort of roll the pod over as your answer to resiliency. Now, of course, you could also do in-place upgrades, release upgrades, I've done those, in very, very large clusters, you know, over thousands of machines, very, very well. They're definitely doable, but I don't think most people are ready to think in terms of that. And if you're already using something like Kubernetes, it may not even help because, you know, you're already dealing with something that already thinks it owns the life cycle of, of, of a pod. And trying to do that internal to the pod on top of that is a little bit of friction. So... I may not recommend that everyone look into that side of releases, but there's a really deep rabbit hole there that we could get into of, of different ways you could run and deploy Erlang or Elixir applications. And it, it's really interesting to see how it varies too, from things that run in big clusters to things that are like effectively firmware on little robots or embedded appliances and stuff like that. So... We've very much talked a lot about Elixir just now, and I'm very curious, you mentioned really liking F-sharp, and I think you mentioned it just a little while ago. Is there any kind of like dream team combination of something that you like working with Elixir like F-sharp, or are you an Elixir Phoenix fan? Uh, you know, I do not play favorites at all. You asked me earlier if I had any interesting hot takes about Elixir. I guess the one funny one is, is that I'm one of those people who actually do enjoy and prefer at some level working with Erlang over Elixir. 
which is a shock to some people. It's like, how, how can you deal with syntax or how can you deal with, you know, there are constraints and I like the smallness of Erlang as well as the way it forces you to focus uh, on, on certain things, ways of doing things, what it makes easy versus hard. It's not for everyone, but it certainly is one of those things. If we're going to talk about being in a polyglot environment, one of the easy low hanging pieces of fruit in the Elixir community is to step outside of Elixir, but still be on the beam. You know, you don't necessarily need to bring in something like F sharp or, or Rust or C or Python or, you know, whatever I've written in lots of languages, but the idea here is there's a whole lot you can think about just by shifting what's easy and what's hard and what kind of comes as idiomatic in one language versus another. And learning Erlang, like really learning it, not just understanding that the syntax is different, can bring different idioms to the table. And I, I think ideas flow both ways. And, and if you learn one of these languages, you're gonna use the other better. Like you'll see the latest release of, of Erlang, version 25, now has this new maybe syntax, which is effectively importing with as a feature of Elixir into Erlang as, as a built-in. And so this, this new feature comes after many, many years of Erlang programmers doing nested case expressions over and over again and go like, oh, this Sorry, is Sorry, have you seen a, a nested case? <laughs> yeah, and so... Oh, no. <laughs> there, were, there were a lot of Fun proposals times. That, that came around to fix this. This was far from the first attempt. <laughs> And there are a lot of interesting ways to still solve some of those issues in different ways. Like I'll even mention, you know, F sharp in this case has a very different approach to, to solving this with something called active patterns. And so what we end up deciding to add to the language can be a really hard, long choice, but I, I think it's not a mistake that we kind of ended up somewhere that's very closely aligned with what Elixir has. And there's a lot to learn from, from that experience. Like, okay, what else can we think about? Uh, what, what else is missing? Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I think Erlang needs to evolve as a language just as much as, as any other. It doesn't need to go fast. It doesn't need to, you know, rush to add features. It, it's perfectly usable as it is, but there are quality of life improvements that will certainly make code bases easier to write, easier to maintain, easier to get right the first time. And I think we're in, in this boat together. And so the more we think about it that way and are less one-sided, I think that's one of the best ways we can think as polyglots on the beam rather than polyglots in the large. Right on. I, I really have to ask this too, because we were talking about hot takes and something that I feel like you said was a hot take on a Twitter, like a tweet from a while ago was that you thought that some of the topics that you found really interesting that you wanted to pitch as conference ideas were maybe ideas that other people wouldn't find interesting. And I'm so oh. curious about digging into that. If you're, yeah, if you're that cool with tweet. that. Yeah. I've had some people nudging me to start submitting to conferences again and things that I find interesting can be kind of esoteric. I've given talks in the past about, like I have this talk that takes Elixir code or airline code and takes the journey from that source code to parsing, to 
all of the different steps of transformation and compilation, all the way down to the, the beam files, and then from the beam files, the code loader and what it does to fuse and translate those beam instructions into actual VM instructions, and how runtime worked. Now, the issue with that talk is a lot has changed. The compiler is very different. Beam files have a lot more info now, and we have a JIT. So I've thought of redoing that, but at the same time, it's I, I don't know if everyone's actually as interested as I am on actually seeing going from one line of code into what assembly instructions are running and, and how that works. It's Owen's interesting. Interested. I'm interested. Owen's, yeah. <laughs> I just started, I have not gotten into the weeds with compilers yet, but over the weekend I was doing some side project work and got some help in Elixir Slack trying to get information out of uh, live view modules uh, oh, at yeah. compile time. And uh, once I got a little bit of help with that, it like it like unlocked a lot of things for being able to kind of like detect which events have been defined and, and that kind of thing. Yeah, even Short even time. to the, the earlier level before you get to deeper representations in the compiler, learning how macros get executed right. and what the output actually looks like and, and, and finding ways to explore that is one of those areas where I, I, I think Elixir could actually use some improvement and some tooling to help exploratory interaction with macros and, and, and really see, okay, I wrote this code. What, what is it really turning into? What does this module look like after it's gone through all of this compilation? And that I think you can kind of do if, if you know the right things to call by hand, but it's something that I think ought to be like almost automatic where you could just kind of go in your editor and say, okay, expand this, show me what, what the Elixir code would look like expanded, how many times, n times, all the way, you know, whatever it is. Um, See, just that is so interesting just to hear you kind of talk about it because you're already interested in it. I think my favorite kind of talks that I've listened to are people who really were engaged in, in like a subject or a topic and you could feel that and you can see it. And like that excitement that somebody has for a thing is like the best fodder for conference talk topics. And so I'm really glad we're, we're getting a chance to talk about it because I want to just say, go for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My, my, my concern right now is that it's, it's, it's a talk that's probably too many talks in one. I need to cut it down. Uh, last time I tried to a give series. it, I felt rushed through. It's just very, very difficult to fit in under an hour. And most conferences don't even take hour long slots anymore anyway. So figuring out how to reformulate that is something on my mind. And, and, I, and I need to do it in a way that feels accessible because what what I often get is a few people get really interested in it, but then when you go into talking about static single assignment and how compilers work with static single assignment and optimization and, and type-directed optimizations and stuff like that, they'll kind of get lost in some of the detail. And, and, you know, I don't want to spend so much time getting into compiler theory when the day-to-day, -day, like, look, you can actually take your code with you and see what it looks like at this step. And here's how you could do that. And you don't need to understand how the compiler works. And that's kind of what I've meant by that tweet. The actual theoretical way that all of this works and connects together is really interesting to me. But I think the practical thing that most people would want to take away is actually being able to just say, oh yeah, 
I know that there's this midpoint representation that has all of these things done to the code. I want to see what that looks like for this, this file and know how to get that output, know how to like thread things through to the right point and, and, and grab that and say, yes, okay, this is what the code looks like at this point. And I, I think that might be more of what would be a successful conference talk rather than the other. The other might be more of a book than a conference talk. I, I have no aspiration to do a talk that needs to be a book or write a book, so don't, don't ask. <laughs> <laughs> I think we just heard it here first that Kara is gonna write a book. Maybe, maybe. I've had, <laughs> I've had friends write books. I, I, uh, I know how difficult it is. Yes. A lot of respect. Absolutely. For those that have that undertaking. I don't know. I have a lot of things I might write on before it would be technology. So I don't know if I'm, if I'm going to write a book, it probably won't involve computers. Speaking of not involving computers, what's the difference between Kirby and Jigglypuff? I was just curious. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> Kirby. Okay. Kirby's, uh, I mean, for those who, who don't know what we're talking about, this is in video game territory, I believe. Um, and so Kirby is not only a brand of vacuum, but it is a mascot <laughs> right. for a Nintendo game of a character that effectively acts like a vacuum and sucks everything and gets powers by sucking in items or enemies or whatever. And, Super likable, very cute character. Um, honestly, just adorable. Um, the reason I ask is I think I saw a tweet or something about Kirby, and I was oh, like, wait yeah. a minute, that's Jigglypuff, because I've only played Smash Brothers. Yeah, I'm not like I, a Pokemon I have person. Two, two Twitter accounts. Did you one just... that is tech-focused, and then the other that's everything else. <laughs> Somebody yeah. is so confused. <laughs> Jigglypuff is a Pokemon. What? Exactly. And the other one's a Pokemon. And I don't think, I don't think, it hoovers up whatever's around you. It's not going to no, suck up anything. It sings people to sleep and then gets mad because everyone fell asleep when it was performing. <laughs> okay, so this is what I this is what I get for not playing Smash Brothers in a couple of years, probably, <laughs> or knowing anything about uh, Pokemon. So I mean, okay. I, I'm surprised uh, Pokemon comes up a lot on this podcast, Owen. You need to you need to brush up. <laughs> <laughs> PD time, right? <laughs> Oh my goodness gracious. <laughs> I had no, I saw this on the script and I was like, oh, they're like, Kara must feel very strongly about Jigglypuff versus um, Kirby. Oh, this I, must yeah, be I a thing. I don't. Um, <laughs> I, I just think Kirby is a very adorable mascot. And as far as Nintendo characters go, Kirby is underrated. I would love a Kirby game well before a Mario game. I mean, bummers mm -hmm. are great, I guess, but it's kind of, Kind of tired, and, and Kirby's where it's at. Okay, so Kirby's <laughs> where it it's at, and <laughs> Owen thinks that Kirby and Jigglypuff are the same thing. Got it. <laughs> hey, no, now I know. They're uh, completely different, similar-looking characters. So they're both pink, right? <sighs> oh my god, they're both pink yeah, and cars. round and adorable. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. Oh my gosh, I don't even know how to recover from this one. <laughs> I think the only thing I can really do at this point with my life, with my day is ask Kara, do you have any final plugs or pitches for the audience anywhere that they can find you or anything you can check out? Oh boy, yeah. I think what we're doing in the Elixir community is really interesting and a, and a lot of that is represented at PepsiCo. So come talk to us. We'd love 
to have conversations with people who are just curious if you're looking for work or you just want to figure out what's going on, just connecting with more people. And I think it's really, really important the community as a whole really becomes more self-aware of everything going on. So regardless, I, I think it's, it's a good thing to make sure that people know that if you're curious, just reach out. There are a lot of people at PepsiCo writing elixirs, so they probably won't be hard to find, but you can uh, contact me if you want. I've got a um, technical Twitter account that does not talk about Kirby at Kara Codes. So you can go to that one and uh, reach out to me and I can definitely talk a little more about what we're doing and maybe give more, more of my interesting hot takes. But outside of that, I, I think what I really enjoy is, is sharing a little more beyond one language and really thinking in the wider landscape of programming and engineering, what are we trying to get to, you know, as far as the next step in, in, in Elixir's evolution as an ecosystem, what do we need to build, what's missing, but also really figuring out how we can tell people what's interesting about Elixir and what people can take from Elixir and, and be inspired by. It's not that everything needs to be written in Elixir, it's that people can learn a lot from whatever language they're using. And once you learn a language like Elixir or, or whatever, you're going to take ideas away from that. You're not going to be able to re-implement supervision hierarchies the same way they work in the Veeam. It's just, I've seen people try it time and time again. It, it doesn't quite work the same, but the way it makes you think about things and approach problems and systems engineering and observability and deployment, compilation, all, all sorts of things. All of these things are, are takeaways. And if we represent ourselves as a community that's less about, oh, you have to use Elixir and more about what can people learn from Elixir even if they don't use it, I think we're gonna have a lot more interesting connections and, and we're gonna have a lot more vibrant contribution too because people might actually say, oh, I thought it was just this esoteric, you know, domain specific language that only worked with telecom applications and, you know, they right. couldn't be more wrong, but at the same time, like we can't get there if we keep telling them, you just have to use it. You know, it's, it's, uh, you know, conversation and it's a little more open. Yeah. I know after each of the conferences in happy hours and hallway tracks, I definitely hear a lot about Elixir, but a lot about other languages because we're all living in a, in a very diverse world, uh, technically speaking, but also as we're wrapping up here, I just wanted to say happy pride. Uh, I love seeing representation from every kind of everyone up and down the spectrum. And hello to my queer fam out there. Yes, <laughs> you're one fan. <laughs> yeah, no, it's yes. it's it's great having a community that has been very accepting. And and you know, I, I've not really had to think twice about Elixir events and and worry about whether or not someone's going to have a problem with who I am. And it's something I hope continues and that people put effort into perpetuating, you know, really, really thinking about accepting people and really opening our doors rather than, than closing them. And so I, I really appreciate everyone in the community being, being so friendly and open. Uh, yeah, thanks so. Much. 100%. Yeah, I hope we all get us a, a chance someday soon in the future to 
get together and, and just be because you know this is my favorite community to be a part of and i'm so proud to be a part of it so thanks everyone for making it great well cara it's been so wonderful to chat with you today thank you so much again for being here so that's it for today's episode of elixir wizards thank you again to our guest cara mitchell for joining us i'm sunday mint and my co-host is owen bickford elixir wizards is produced by hanger studios and is brought to you by smart logic Here at SmartLogic, we build custom web and mobile software. We work in Elixir, Rails, React, Flutter, and more. Need a piece of custom software built? Hit us up. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. Your reviews help us reach new listeners. And you can find us on Twitter at SmartLogic or join the Elixir Wizards Discord. The link is on the podcast page. And see you next week for more on Elixir in a polyglot environment.